So last week we started a new series and it's called Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And if you were not here, that's okay. I'm gonna give you just a real quick recap so you can get caught up. But this is the second week in that. And so last week we began to talk about the value and power of consistency. If we look at the different arenas of our life, the ones that we've been most successful or we've seen progress in, it's because we have invested time, uh, energy, finances, and we've done it consistently, and that's why we've seen results. And so the power of consistency is not only true of these uh, different arenas of our life, but it's also true of our character. And so we talked about being consistent in our character and being people of faith. And so character, we defined roughly as um, that uh, who you are on the inside, who you are when nobody is looking, doing what is right even when it's costly or difficult. And so we talked about what does it look like to be a person of character. And one of the big lessons was that we, um, we value who we are becoming more than what we achieve. Who we are becoming is far more important than what we may ever achieve in life. And, and in fact, who we are is going to affect all the arenas of our life, including the things that we achieve. And so we are going to be people who strive to have deep and profound and stable character. And we looked at a person named Joseph. And if you're a Bible person, you're probably familiar with it. Even if you're not, you probably have heard of this guy before. It is a story where there is a, a young man named Joseph. And he is a great example of character. But also we kind of can see these tests and how God works through these different situations and circumstances in order to build our character. And so we looked at the first half of Joseph's story, and it goes like this. As Joseph is one of 12 sons. He's born to a man named Jacob. He is the father's favorite son, and because of that, his brothers get envious, and they decide they're going to get rid of him. And so they sell him off into slavery. He shipped off to Egypt. Well, in Egypt, he is bought by a man named Potiphar, and he goes from being just a slave in Potiphar's house to ruling over or kind of uh, they had, uh, 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 managing the household of Potiphar. And where we ended last week was kind of an unfortunate position where he is doing everything that he can do to be a man of character. He is consistent. All of a sudden, Potiphar's wife notices, you're pretty good looking, young man. I think I want a piece of that. <laughs> and so she tries to get a piece of that. And he says, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. And so he runs out and she then claims, because she's angry, that he tried to take advantage of her. Well, immediately he is thrown into prison and now he's a prisoner. And that's kind of where we ended last week. And so let me jump into where we were. Here's what it says. Genesis, where are we at? Genesis 39 says this. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And so there's a pattern that begins to emerge. We see that despite whatever circumstances Joseph finds himself in, if he is consistent and he's a person of character, God is faithful. He is faithful in the highs and the lows of whatever's going on in Joseph's life. Well, one day Joseph, as kind of overseer of this prison now, he uh, oversees two men who were from a kind of a high position of authority within the palace. One was the cupbearer to the king and the other was the baker. Now, those don't seem like high positions, but they were. Because think about this. If you were going to try to assassinate the pharaoh, 
How would you do it? Probably through poison. That's the only way to get access to them. And so the cupbearer was the person who would test the drinks before Pharaoh had them. And the baker was obviously the one who, who made the food for him. And so these guys were trusted because the Pharaoh's life was in their hands. And so apparently they got uh, in trouble with the Pharaoh and he sent them off into prison. And so Joseph is overseeing them and he notices one day that there's something wrong. He asks them, guys, what's going on? What's the problem? They said, well, you know, both of us, we woke up and we had a dream. We had a vision, we think. And they're kind of similar, but we don't know what they mean. Joseph says, you know what? That's crazy. I can actually interpret dreams. Let me tell you what they mean. So he tells the cupbearer, okay, what is, tell me your dream. Explain it to me. He explains the dream. He says, here's what's going to happen. In three days, your position of authority is going to be restored. You're going to be back in the palace. The guy's like, awesome. That's great. He goes, when you get there, don't forget about me. All right? Little old Joseph, who's stuck in the prison, when you get up there, uh, remember, remember what I did for you. It's okay, yeah, yeah, no problem. The baker's going, okay, cool, well, what is my dream? He goes, okay, yours is exactly the same, except in three days, you're going to be killed. <laughs> Bummer. And actually, we find out within three days, both of those come true. Uh, the cupbearer is restored to his position of authority, but there's only one problem. Here's what it says. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Oh, come on, man. I just told you you're going to live. I just gave you hope. You're restored to your position. You get in the palace and you forget about us. In fact, if we fast forward, uh, it's not another two years until the cupbearer remembers what Joseph did. And if we look at the beginning of the story, um, when, Jesus, or when, when Joseph has these dreams of the future to when we actually see them start to come true, it's 13 years of which he's on this roller coaster ride. And so I think one of the first things that we can begin to learn about character development is character is built and tested over time, especially time waiting. I hate waiting for things. You hate waiting for things. We live in a society that is instant gratification, instant everything. See, I'm a, I'm a millennial. We have lots of millennials here, Gen Xers, boomers. Um, I think millennials are probably most guilty of this, but we're all guilty of it, is we love instant gratification because we have an app for that. We can pop it in the microwave. If it doesn't happen in the next couple minutes, I'm over it. I'm on to the next thing. But the truth is the areas of our life that are most important is the areas that are going to take time to develop. Have you ever been in those seasons where it feels like nothing is happening? It feels like you're absolutely wasting your time. Your career is going nowhere. You haven't met that person. You're not making any progress. There's no maturity. It just feels like you could erase this whole season of my life and it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter because nothing happened during that time. In the Bible, it talks about these moments or these seasons as desert experiences or being in the desert. And we see hero after hero in the scriptures go through these desert moments. Moses, he spent 40 years as a shepherd and then another 40 years wandering through the desert with the people of Israel. Then we see this happen also to Jesus. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness prior to starting his ministry. Kind of a fun little Bible fact, this happened to Paul as well. Paul has this dramatic conversion experience and before he begins his ministry, he takes three years to go and to study and to learn, just out in the desert. It's because during these moments, when we feel like nothing is happening, when there is no progress, or maybe we're even going backward, this is when our character is being developed the most. Externally, it feels like no progress is being made. But internally, this may be the time in which we are growing the most. So Joseph spends two years of waiting in this prison, and he doesn't know it, but God is really developing in him 
the tools and the faith and the humility necessary um, for what he is preparing him to do. That Joseph is going to have a huge responsibility in the future. In order to be able to take this responsibility and use it wisely, he's going to have to have the character that will sustain it. And so in these two years, God is developing in him this character. Time also uh, is the thing that builds character. Is we know that um, if you want something to last, if you want it to be stable, it's probably going to take time. And we know this is true of all the arenas of our life, our marriages, relationships, finances, all that faith, everything. And the uh, illustration I've heard my entire life is a mushroom can grow in six hours, an oak tree, 60 years. If you wake up in the morning, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but you wake up in the morning, you walk out in your front yard, there's a mushroom, and you go, you were not here last night. When did you get here? And then what is the first thing that you do? I just walk up and kick that thing, like, bah, right? It explodes into a thousand pieces, and now you have more mushrooms the next day. But, but if you walk up to an oak tree and you try to do the same thing, you're probably going to have a few broken toes. Why? Because that oak tree has deep roots. It's, it's stable. It's taken a long time to grow, but it's also not going to move very easily. And it's because time is what ends up building our character. But time is also uh, something that can test our character. The New Testament says things like finish the race. It talks about endurance and perseverance and keeping the faith and, and not giving up. Because time not only can build your character, but it also can be the thing that breaks your character. It can be the thing that tears you down or wears you down and eventually you end up quitting. I thought this was uh, maybe just something that I was becoming more aware of, but I ended up looking it up. Is, um, I thought something weird, a trend that I've seen recently is people getting divorced after decades of marriage. I thought, I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's, I'm just more aware of it or what. So I looked it up and in the last 25 years, people 50 and up, the amount of divorce has doubled. It's doubled in that age group. Now, why would that be? Why, why after decades, raising kids, they get out of the house, all that, why would, why would their marriages end up, end up failing? Also think about pastors, pastors who are faithful for decades. They do incredible works, and then they get to the end of their career, and they have a moral blow-up, and I go, what, what happened there? I see this with people at church all the time. They come, they feel like you know, they're making life change and progress. Sometimes they're even leading and serving in different areas, and then one day they're just gone. Either their life implodes or they just go off, and I have no idea what happened to them. And I go, what? what's the common denominator? Why does this happen? And I've realized through this study that it's a lack of character on our part. Is if we were to look at why these people fail after it seems like uh, they would have made it through kind of the, the tough times, it's because they lack perseverance. See, uh, we talked about last week, Romans 5.3, it says this, We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And so what Paul is saying here is, is perseverance is a characteristic of a person who has character. And the reason why some of us end up blowing up towards the end of our careers, the end of our marriages, or, what, or halfway through is because we lack perseverance. And I will be totally honest. This is an area of character that I have not developed well yet, is perseverance. I think I've quit everything I've ever done mm, around halfway through. I get distracted. I get over it. I'm bored. I don't want to deal with it anymore. If you came to my house right now, you would see all the projects I've ever started are 80% complete at best. It is just a ton of incomplete projects. If you were to look in my garage, you would find a truck that has been sitting there for 10 years that is at, I don't know, 40% complete at best. 
If you were to come and hear my knee pop right now, you would say, what's wrong with that? And I would say, I stopped going to physical therapy halfway through because I was bored with it. Every area of my life that you point to is pretty much me just quitting at some point. And I've realized for me, this is a character issue is because I haven't developed the perseverance. Time also allows us to evaluate other people's character. If you want to know who somebody is, watch them for a while. Not like a creepy way through their window kind of watch them. <laughs> Not like a Facebook stalk them. But like, like, as you're developing a relationship, observe who they are and their character. Because here's what I th- I've realized to be true is um, people with character look better the closer you get and the longer you watch them. People with character, the closer that you get and the longer that you watch, they look better. Because you know there's those people that when you meet them, they just can shine you on. They can tell you what you want to hear. They can believe you. They can make you believe that they are a certain person. But if you watch them for a while, you'll realize, well, who they try to pretend to be is not who they really are. And time allows us to evaluate uh, who their character really is. When Amy and I were dating, um, my parents said, here's kind of our advice for dating is you should date for a long time and have a short engagement. And the reason is because you want to date for a long time is because people can shine you on for a while, but eventually their true colors are going to shine. And so you need that time to be able to see who they are and so they can see who you are. You don't want any big crazy secrets or character issues to kind of emerge in the middle of your marriage and go, oh my goodness, where did this come from? And so they said a long period of dating and then a short engagement. And I, feel, I realized that the short engagement was because she wouldn't be able to keep her hands off me. And so I said, okay, fine. <laughs> Is that right or no? That's how we got three kids. Um, anyway, I'm going to pay for that later. Uh, okay, let's get back to Joseph. Um, two years goes by. Joseph is sitting in this prison, and Pharaoh, unbeknownst to Joseph, is having dreams. He's having visions, and he doesn't understand what they mean, and so he's asking everybody, all the wise people, all the magicians, can anybody interpret these for him? Nobody can, and then one day the cupbearer goes, you know, you know what, I happen to know a guy. I, you know what, it slipped my mind. I'm sorry about that, but I know a guy who can do this. He did it for me. It came true. Let's see if he can do it for you. And so they call Joseph up out of the prison and into the palace, and Joseph and Pharaoh have a meeting. Here's what happens. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, which by the way is the original I had a dream speech. I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. He says, I I cannot do it. Uh, but God will give Pharaoh the answers he desires. And so immediately, Joseph, being a person of character, being a person of faith, being consistent, he does not take credit. It would have been easy for him to go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm good, okay? I'm really, you want to hang out with me? because No, he says, oh, you know what? I, I can't do it, but God can do it. And so he is quick to give God credit. Well, he ends up interpreting Pharaoh's dream And he says, you're going to have seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. And so you need to get prepared. During those seven years of abundance, you need to collect enough grain to be able to feed uh, the, the, the nation of Egypt. And so Pharaoh says, you know what? This sounds reasonable. This sounds pretty good. You're the only one who's actually given me an answer. And then here's what he says next. He says, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. 
only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. That's what I call a come up right there. Is he woke up in a prison and is going to bed in a palace. That is a pretty significant turn of events. That is a rags to riches kind of story. And so from our perspective, we look at Joseph as an overnight success. And the reason is because we see his dreams and vision of the future come to fruition. But see, I don't think this is how God views it. I don't think that God would say, yes, Joseph now is successful in this moment. I think that God would say Joseph was successful the entire time. Even while he was a slave and in prison, because he was consistent, because he was faithful, because he was a person of character, he was successful the entire journey. We just now get to see the external success, but internally he's been successful every step of the way. I was reading this, uh, this thought came into my mind is, our biggest blessings can also be our biggest curse. If you look at Joseph's life, the biggest curse in his life was the fact that he was sold into slavery. Let's begin this whole thing. And it began because he had these visions. He had this gift. And he decided that he was going to go and he was going to tell everybody about it, how he was going to lord over his family, his 11 brothers. And that's what started this whole mess. And yet, that is also the thing which got him out of this mess. His biggest blessing is also his biggest curse. And my bet is that that's probably true of your life as well is you have certain natural abilities and gifts and maybe even some resources. And those are the things that have brought the biggest blessings and the biggest curses in your life, depending on how you use them. You may have leadership ability. You may be a charismatic person, magnetic personality, and you're able to attract people and be able to convince people of certain things, be able to, to take them in a certain direction. And you use that for self-gratification. And it brought a lot of regret and pain to your life and to theirs. But that's also the thing that has made you successful in different arenas of life. You may be a person who is detailed and organized and disciplined and everything fits in this box and this is how it's supposed to be and this is what has made you successful in your career and yet this is what has brought the most tension into your relationships. See, our biggest blessings can also be our biggest curses. I think the difference is how and who we use them for. Well, character is built and tested during our triumphs. So we see that the predictions come true, that Joseph, um, the, the nation of Egypt experiences seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. Joseph was ready for it. He knew. And so he is pretty much at this point living the Egyptian dream. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's well-known. By this time, he's married, has a couple kids. He's got a house with a white picket fence. Everything is going great for Joseph. And believe it or not, and this is going to sound maybe a little... Um, counterintuitive, but this is when Joseph's character is the most vulnerable because he now has everything at his fingertips. He can experience and do whatever he wants. He also can start to believe that he doesn't need God anymore. He can start to believe that he's the one who uh, created these successes. He can be full of pride and self-sufficiency, and this is when he is most vulnerable to character failure. That's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Because we start to believe that we have it all together, that we don't need God, that we're self-sustaining and sufficient. We can figure this life out on our own. I've got to be honest, I think one of the toughest places in the world to be a Christian is in the United States. Now, I don't mean on a day-to-day -day basis because we're incredibly comfortable. What I mean is that it's hard to be a faithful person in the midst of being extremely comfortable which all of us are. Because we don't have to depend on a day-to-day -day basis on God. 
We're not wondering where our next meal is coming from. We're not wondering what's going to happen. We've kind of got it all figured out, at least on a day-to-day basis, we think. Now, I want to say something a little bit controversial and maybe a little bit offensive. Um, I'm kind of ready for another recession. I know that sounds like, what? Why would you want that? I'm not, I don't want anyone to lose their jobs or houses, retirement, anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is um, it's in those recessions that people start to wake up a little bit to spiritual things that they start to realize, oh my goodness, I don't have it all together. My world is pretty fragile. It can change in a moment's time. I'm going to need something besides the money. I'm going to need some kind of anchor for my soul. You know, um, the weirdest thing happens is when the economy goes up, church attendance goes down. And then when the economy goes down, church attendance goes up. It's because it wakes us up a little bit. I think it's better to lose our job than our souls, and so I'm kind of ready for another recession. God has been preparing Joseph through uh, all these times of brokenness and, 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 dis- and despair. And he's had to do this because Joseph was uh, going to be given an, an enormous amount of power. And to be able to be responsible with that kind of uh, power and that kind of success, he's going to need to be both humble and confident. He's going to need to be confident knowing that God is in charge, that he is in the midst of this whole thing and that he has a plan, and yet he's going to need to be humble so that he doesn't become full of pride and self-sufficiency, knowing that it is fully dependent on God for everything that he has. So the end of the story goes something like this, is, um, and I would encourage you to go back and, and read this, because there's tons of details I have to leave out, and it's pretty interesting, but what ends up happening is there is a famine, and during this famine, Jacob, Joseph's father, sends his boys to Egypt because they're dying. They're starving to death. You need to go and purchase some grain. And so he, the brothers arrive in Egypt, and they come to the governor who is responsible uh, for selling all of the grain, and they request to purchase some. Well, guess who the governor happens to be? Joseph. And so they walk up, and they're bowing in front, requesting to purchase some grain. And by the way, that was the, the dream that he had at the beginning, coming to fruition. They bow, and they're asking for grain, and they don't realize who he is. Because remember, this is years and years later. He's a grown man at this point. He's got his Egyptian garb on, and he was 17 when they sold him into slavery. And so they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And so he begins to kind of toy with them a little bit. He begins to test them. He puts them through these series of tests and questions, and he really wants to see, have they changed over these years? Are they still the same people who sold me into slavery, or has their character matured? And so eventually, through these series of tests, he realizes, I, I, I do believe that they really have changed, and so he just can't help himself anymore. And so here's what he says in Genesis 45, says this, Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, excuse my language, but this is the oh crap moment for the brothers. This is like the brother who we thought was dead, who we sold into slavery, assuming that he would be dead at this point, is now alive and he holds our future in his hands. What would we do if we were him? Well, let's see. He had a really nice coat. We got jealous and we sold him into slavery. So mm, I'm thinking we probably wouldn't be very nice to him. But what would a person of character do in this moment? Character is built and tested through uh, transgressions. One of the most difficult situations to be a person of character is when someone has wronged you, when there has been an injustice done to you. It can be anything from people gossiping about you, 
to abusing you physically or emotionally, to abandoning you, to betraying your trust. In those moments, a person of character is required to forgive, especially a person who is a Christian. As Christians, we're not only commanded, uh, but we are given the power to forgive. Because we are people who have been forgiven, and so we have the power to be able to forgive other people. Jesus affirms this and talks about this over and over, but I think one of the best stories that I've heard about this uh, is the story of Corrie Ten Boom. If you don't know her, her story, um, she helped the Jews escape uh, the, the Nazis by hiding them in her house. And eventually she was caught, her family was caught, and they were shipped off to a concentration camp. And in this concentration camp, she, I think, is the only one who survives. Her, or I know her father dies, and her sister dies, and I believe her brother ends up getting shipped away, and, he never, and they never see each other again. And so while she's in this concentration camp, she is a Christian, and so she's sharing the gospel with people, telling them about Jesus. And eventually, she is released, and she goes around directly after World War II around Germany in churches and begins to preach about God's forgiveness. Because this is a no nation that has done some horrible things, some people whose consciences uh, are, are heavy. And she talks about a God who offers forgiveness. And so she's at a church one day, and she's doing this, and Afterward, a bunch of people are coming down and saying hi and talking to her about it. And she recognizes one of the people that's coming down. And one of the people that was coming down was one of the guards in her concentration camp, one of the ones that was especially cruel to her and her sister. And so she watches him walk down, and he stands in front of her, and he puts his hand out to shake her hand, and he says this. He says, I have become a Christian I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? She later writes, I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy, who is her sister, had died in that place. How uh, could, could he erase her slow and terrible death simply for the asking? For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. She says she struggled to even lift her hand to shake this, this man's hand. And she said a silent prayer, Lord, just give me strength. She says, I cried out, I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasp each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I told this story last night, and a woman came up to me, and she said, you know, um, I heard Corey tell that story 40 years ago in a little church, in person, and it was your great-grandfather's church where I heard that story. Apparently, my great-grandfather knew her and had her out to his church, and they spoke about forgiveness, and she told this very story. And I think, whoa, what a crazy coincidence. I happen to be telling this story. You were there. my what? And then I realized, oh, no, that's kind of what God does. Is he gives us these little pointers to his purpose, these little affirmations, these little proofs along our journey. And he goes, you know, I'm not just in control of Joseph's story. I'm in control of your story. I'm in control of human history. And I have a plan. And it has been unfolding according to my plan since the very beginning. And he gives us these little proofs along the way. These little affirmations. The story of Joseph is an affirmation that God is in control as well. Not just in his story, but in, in, in human history. Before we get to that, let me, in Joseph's story, it goes like this. Is, 
Eventually, he calls for his father to come, and they are reunited. And we have this reunion after 25 years of separation where the father thought that his son was dead and he was alive. And they have this embrace, and his father says, now I can die in peace because we have been reconciled. And it's this beautiful, beautiful picture of something which they thought was lost and now is found. And it's a picture of hope. And if you remember the Romans passage, it says this, perseverance produces character and character produces Hope. See, at the end of the process of developing character, which is a continual process, but it will continue to produce in us a hope. A hope that that death is not the end. A hope that what is lost can be found. What has been destroyed can be restored. What pain we have can be redeemed. And there is purpose in our pain. It produces in us a profound hope for the future. And this picture of the reunion between the father and the son is a picture of a reunion in which we all hope for. The reunion between our Heavenly Father and ourselves. A reunion between us and our lost loved ones. A moment in which all of our tears and our pain can be wiped away and can be forgotten. Because in that moment, during that embrace, all the 25 years of pain of the child being lost is now wiped away in an instant. So I think the key to character, consistency, and growth, and it sounds so simple, but simply trusting that God is in control. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so it really is saying, you know what, God, I believe that you have a plan. You have a plan for me. You have a plan for my family. You have a plan for this community, this church, that you have a plan for humanity, and that you ultimately are in control, and I can trust you with that. I think this enables us to be people of character. That if we really do trust that God has a plan, that he is in control, we no longer have to seek revenge and vengeance upon people who have done us wrong. In those moments of injustice, we can say, you know what, this is God's to take care of. I can forgive you. I know he's got a plan. In those moments of temptation, I can say, you know what, I know that God has something better for me and I will not settle for less. In those moments in which we are in trial and transition, we know that we can be confident because he has a plan. Just as my last kind of example, that God has a plan, not only for your life and mine, but has been unfolding, and he gives us these pointers, these proofs, is the story of Joseph. Let me see if this story sounds familiar to you at all. He was the father, or he was the object of his father's special love. He was envied and hated for no reason. He claimed that one day he would rule. He was sent by his father to care for his brothers. He was rejected, stripped of his clothing, and condemned to die. He was sold for pieces of silver to the Gentiles. He became a servant. He resisted temptation but was falsely accused. He was assumed dead, never to be seen again, but was raised to rule over all and would save many. And then he would reconcile those who persecuted him to himself. Does that story sound familiar? That's the story of Joseph, and 2,000 years later, that's the story of Jesus. See, God gives us these pointers, and he says, you know, they needed a savior. Egypt at this time, they needed a savior. But that savior is just a foreshadowing of the savior of mankind. And so if you ever doubt that God has a plan, that he's been unfolding this from the beginning, he gives us these little, these little pointers, these little proofs, these little reminders that goes, hey, I still got this. Even when it doesn't make sense, even though the circumstances don't seem to, to align, I got this. I've been unfolding this plan this whole time in human history and in your life. And so I think we can be people who are consistent. We can be people of character 
because we know that he is in control. And so my last question is this. How would someone in your situation act if they were confident that God was in total control of their life? Let's pray. Lord God, I am so... uh, I'm so much, uh, so much more peaceful knowing that you are in control, that I don't have to try to manipulate my way through this life in order to get what I think that I need and I want, but I can rest assured knowing that you have a plan, and if I will simply be consistent, if I will be faithful and I will continue to follow you, that you will work out all things for my good. And so, Lord God, no matter what our circumstances may be in this moment, whether we feel like we're in the valley or at the top of the mountain, that we could trust in the fact that you are in control. And so, Lord God, we look at the story of Joseph, and we are inspired um, by his character and his faith, but more importantly, we are inspired by how you have set in motion your plan, and you continue to unfold it according to your timetable. And because of that, we can be people who are consistent. And so, Lord God, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.